Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Stratosphere. Today I speak to Shashwat Kapadia, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the International Center of Theoretical Sciences at Bangalore. I'm actually privileged to actually get hold of one of the 2000 plus astrophysicists who were instrumental in a groundbreaking discovery in the field of gravitational waves. But I'll let Shashwat tell us more about that. But this chat has really made me fall in love with astronomy all over again and I do hope that anyone listening just take a second look at the sky at night to marvel at its unfathomable size and uh, like any other discussion on astronomy we do touch the gates of philosophy but i do believe that we've wrapped it up in a very apt and beautiful manner uh, let's dive right in welcome shashwat uh, thanks uh, thanks ravi good to have you here it's a pleasure to uh, finally speak to you yeah i'm uh, i'm very happy to do this uh this should be fun i think great great so do you want to just start off with giving us a short intro about yourself uh starting off from what made you in- get inst- interested in in astronomy and you know where are you right now uh sure maybe i'll start from there and then maybe go backward uh so right so i'm currently a a postdoctoral researcher at the international center for the theoretical sciences Uh, so this is a branch of the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, uh, which is located in Bangalore. Okay. Uh, so before that, uh, I did a a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Milwaukee, in the United States. And mm-hmm. prior to that, I I got my PhD at the University of Arkansas, uh, which is also in the US. And before that, I I got my masters uh, from IIT Delhi, a uh, master's wow. in physics. Yeah. so that's uh, this is roughly my my uh, career so far yeah my journey so far um so specifically regarding your question what you know got me interested in uh, in physics and astronomy and astrophysics uh so i guess uh, from what i recall i was actually always curious about uh, astronomy and astrophysics from a very young age in fact uh, i remember that you know even at the age of 7 or 8 i had written uh, you know an essay in french uh, so this i think it will make sense to you i was in the flower room at that time and i just wrote mm-hmm. some essay about you know space and and such so i was always i guess interested in 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 astrophysics uh, but i really started thinking about uh, you know pursuing a sort of Uh, like career or a journey in astrophysics i, I started thinking mm-hmm. about that seriously uh, from the age of about 15 um and this happened when uh, my father got me a book uh, a book was called beyond einstein um and i think you might be interested in this book so i i got it mm-hmm. um so i i i Uh, it looked it had a nice cover also it, it looked you know beyond einstein had a you know catchy name it's by an yeah. by a, a very well known uh, both physicist and a science communicator uh, mm-hmm. michio kaku and uh, i you know when i read the book i thought you know this is this is fascinating stuff and that got me reading other books uh, on popular science uh, including by michio kaku but others as well like stephen hawking brian green and the more i read the stuff the more it seemed to me that you know this is something that i'd like to pursue seriously in the future possibly as a career and i found that uh, my interest in 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 physics especially uh, just 
uh, went on increasing as I got as I uh, education. And mm-hmm. by the time I got to college, I was sure that I, I wanted to to do physics after uh, I finished college. At least I knew that my next step uh, I wanted to do a master's in physics. So I, I was physics, sure yeah. about that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but uh, were you were you pretty sure that you were getting into astrophysics, or did that aspect get in much later on? Uh, so initially, when I uh, wanted to pursue physics, I always had the intention of pursuing astrophysics. Uh, mm-hmm. But after my master's at IIT Delhi, uh, it just seemed to me that I'd acquired more, I had acquired more of an expertise in uh, lasers and optics. Uh, so I thought that, okay, I mean, you know, I may have gotten into this with an interest in astrophysics, but uh, there isn't anything wrong in, you know, making a small diversion. It is still physics and physics problem solving or something that I always enjoyed. So I thought that, okay, I'd do my PhD in, in, in optics. Um, and in fact, when I applied for my PhD, my statement of purpose, everything was very much with the intention of doing a PhD in optics. Uh, but okay. again, as uh, it turned out, uh, you know, as cir- cir- circumstances arranged themselves, that I again uh, got into astrophysics during my uh, graduate school, and uh, and and after that, once I again got into astrophysics, I haven't uh, diverted to something else after that I've been I stuck to astrophysics uh, since I I'd say my second year in my PhD. Yeah, Great. So where, uh, where are you right now? What is the work that you're doing right now? Can you just give us a, a very dumbed down version of that? Right. So like I said, I'm uh, currently at the at the International Center for the Theoretical Sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a branch of the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, but I guess more uh, more pertinent would be for me to say that I'm also a part of a, a very big collaboration uh, called the, the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. Um, okay. And in fact, this has expanded even further uh, to make it even more international and it's now referred to as the LIGO Virgo Kagra Collaboration. Uh, so what, what does LIGO basically stand for? Uh, LIGO is an acronym for okay. laser, uh, yeah. It stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Uh, so, so the idea here is that what we are trying to do is to first of all detect these things called gravitational waves. Um, and once we detect these gravitational waves, we want to say something about the the objects that actually produce them. So, I guess uh, maybe very briefly, I should explain what gravitational. Yeah, waves that'd are. be good. Yeah, so um, I guess the, 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 the easiest way to think about gravitational waves are basically as ripples in the fabric of space. Uh, so just to give some context, uh, Albert Einstein had come up with his now very famous theory of gravity called general relativity sometime mm-hmm. in uh, 1915, so over 100 years ago. And okay. what he essentially, his essential insight was that uh, matter, especially very massive objects, uh, mm-hmm. produce uh, curvatures in space, or you can think of them as dents in space. And mm-hmm. any other object that wanders close to this massive object uh, will have their paths influenced in such a way so as to follow that curvature. So the curvature produced by the massive object determines the path of other objects that wander near that massive object. Uh, oh, so okay. now, 
so this is uh, so there's a very nice uh, saying which i think you're also very familiar with there was this uh, a quote by uh, John Wheeler where he says uh, that general relativity can basically be encapsulated by the following statement that matter tells space how to curve and space tells matter how to move so massive objects produces curvatures in space that's matter telling space how to curve and Correct. other objects uh, that are influenced uh, or their paths are influenced by this curvature that's the second part uh, space tells matter how to move now so this was essentially his insight that he came up with in 1915 and a year after that he came mm -hmm. up with an even more uh, i would say a radical insight and that is that he he realized that not only does matter curve space but if massive objects were to accelerate through space uh, they would actually produce ripples in the very fabric of space uh, and what okay. is what is interesting for us from the perspective of detecting gravitational waves is that uh, the motion of these massive objects determines the shape of these gravitational waves uh, in okay, addition okay. Uh, I, in addition it also tells you some things about the masses uh, of these objects how fast they are spinning uh, and that essentially then gives you some insights into the population meaning uh, what what kind of objects these thing or, or what kind of distribution of objects you have in 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 space so specifically uh, so one of the, the the very first discovery of gravitational waves that uh, mm -hmm. happened in 2015 uh, was uh, the gravitational waves that were produced by a binary black hole meaning you have two very black. massive objects uh, <coughs> black holes that are orbiting each other and because they are orbiting each other they are accelerating and einstein says that accelerating massive objects produce ripples in the fabric of space so these orbiting black holes produced gravitational waves uh, and these waves were detected for the very first time in 2015 and what is interesting is that because these uh, black holes orbiting black holes produce gravitational waves uh, these waves carry away energy from this orbit of the black hole so it, it comes at a price uh, okay. and because of this loss of energy the black holes get closer and closer towards each other uh, okay. they basically spiral in and eventually they merge and what uh, we were able to detect for the very first time in 2015 was the very last few cycles as well okay. as the merger uh, of these two black holes so that's wow. uh, so so is this is sort of a, so is there some sort of a speed that uh, in terms of the acceleration speed there has to be a certain limit before you start being able to detect gravitational waves uh yes yes you're actually right so it turns out that if the black holes are very separated from each other uh, mm -hmm. the distance between them is a lot and the you know the orbital period as they call it so the time it takes for one black hole to cover one no, orbital no. cycle if that is very large uh, then the speeds of these black holes uh, will not be that large and therefore the gravitational waves that they produce will be uh, relatively weaker uh, however uh, when you 
when the black holes actually get closer towards each other, they are moving a, a lot faster. Um, and they produce gravitational waves that uh, end up becoming uh, detectable. Now, there's, uh, there's one thing that I want to just highlight here that even though I talked about gravitational waves being stronger and weaker, as yeah. such, these gravitational waves by nature, by all human standards, they're actually very, very weak. Um, so uh, a gravitational wave that uh, impinges on an object that is one kilometer long uh, mm -hmm. will produce a deformation, a change in length in that object um, mm -hmm. that is of the order of 1000, the radius of the nucleus of an atom. Uh, so this is, these are very, very, very tiny variations. And therefore, mm -hmm. these LIGO detectors, uh, yeah. what they have achieved is, is, is truly a marvel of, uh, I, I think, science and engineering. Um, and in fact, it is the, the most precise detector uh, that is currently available today and possibly I, I would argue that the the most precise detector ever made uh, in the in the history of uh, humankind and i'm assuming the, the the most accurate one also right because i remember when we were there i think there was this uh, atomic time was it or what was it i forget what it is called but uh, the atomic clock right, right which right. is not yeah. slow down i mean that at one time turned uh, was the, the most precise or accurate instrument, I remember. But I, I'm right. sure that a lot has happened after that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, you could say that these are, uh, since you mentioned clocks, you, we could think of these detectors rather as uh, the most uh, accurate microscopes, if you like, uh, ever mm. made. Uh, because they're essentially detecting variations that are subatomic in in uh, in, in in extent. Uh, so, and and the the distances over which these subatomic variations happen are of the order of a kilometer. So basically, our error in measurements has to be very very small. And achieving this was, uh, it, it, I think it, it took uh, several decades before they were able to achieve this, uh, this sort of measurement. So measurement. it's truly, a, yeah, it's truly a testament of, you know, belief that this thing can be done and, you know, persevering till the end. That's, uh, it so was, yeah. just to get it straight, Einstein thought of this experiment a hundred years ago and the the actual proof of that thought experiment happened in 2015. Right. So I'll just maybe rephrase this a little bit. So Einstein was able to show that gravitational waves should exist, although mm -hmm. he himself believed that they would never be detected. He, he thought that they were too weak to ever be detected. Uh, I guess okay. so Einstein was, you know, he was a great physicist, but not necessarily the greatest engineer. Uh, so yeah, yeah. He, he basically didn't think that they would be detected. Uh, and in fact, this was also the general consensus for the decades to follow. Uh, but then there were uh, basically three people uh, who eventually, uh, well, two of them ended up winning the Nobel Prize. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the three of them are uh, Ray Weiss, Ron Drever, and Kip Thorne. Uh, who basically designed uh, the this, uh, the LIGO this LIGO interferometer, and what they found is that uh, you know you should actually be able to detect these gravitational waves, uh, and uh, of course being able to produce the necessary equipment uh, 
uh, as well as uh, acquiring the funds to be able to produce uh, such detectors um yeah. would uh, would ended up taking several uh, several decades um, so just uh, to give you a sort of a sense of scale of these detectors um, there are two detectors in the united states uh, these mm -hmm. detectors are essentially two very long arms that are perpendicular to each other and each arm is 4 kilometers long um so it and and i think the the total amount and I'm, i'm not exactly sure of the number i might be getting it a bit wrong in terms of the budget but it was of the mm -hmm. order of uh, of a billion dollars uh, to make these detectors each each detector uh no i think each detector was less i think the two together maybe cost a billion dollars yeah, yeah and my goodness yeah so what we will do is we'll also put a link to to that visual depiction of how the gravitational waves are detected through ligo and what is the kind of in inference that people can see so it is as a visual reference of that also while we are discussing okay. yeah so that's something that we will put down sure but it's, yeah. it's fascinating that you know einstein had these kind of uh, thought experiments and we are yet trying to figure out is there anything else within the gravitational waves field that he's uh, you know made equations for or he's had thoughts for that we are yet trying to decode is there anything else uh so as such uh, what i don't think there's anything in gravitational waves anything further uh, that mm -hmm. einstein had has come up with uh, in fact uh, i think uh, the detection of gravitational waves was uh, was one of the last things that uh, einstein had predicted uh, that has been detected um however uh, that said um, there are currently efforts that are ongoing to see whether einstein's theory of gravity also works when the gravitational fields become stronger and stronger uh, so the the reason uh, the reason people believe that maybe eventually einstein will not be correct is mm -hmm. because uh, there is a, a very big unanswered question in physics that has been that had even bothered einstein and he could not solve it and that is that uh, Einstein's theory of gravity is incompatible with another fundamental theory of matter and that is quantum mechanics and it turns out that when theoretical physicists try to combine the two to come up with a quantum theory of gravity uh, yeah. in its various forms whether it's string theory or loop quantum gravity or or whatever yeah. you uh, so far uh, this the the efforts have have not been successful now what this means is that you have two experiments or sorry i'm sorry you have two theories that have been experimentally confirmed in their own respective regimes meaning that at the level of subatomic particles uh, quantum yeah. mechanics has been proved to be accurate to a very high precision uh and in the field of astrophysics involving very massive objects so in mm -hmm. in in that in that realm uh yeah. einstein's theory of gravity has proved to be very accurate uh yeah. however uh what we find is so so the argument here is that you know there is nothing within the construct of quantum mechanics or general relativity that says that it should only work in the realm or in their respective realm so there's nothing in quantum mechanics that says that it should not work everywhere 
there is nothing in general relativity which says that it should not work everywhere yeah. yeah and yet when we try to bridge the two of them they they end up they end up becoming uh, incompatible so therefore it is fairly certain that either quantum mechanics or general relativity but most likely both are actually mm -hmm. approximations of a more fundamental theory right that that become their respective approximations in the in their respective realms so that is uh, something that uh, people are after and this is where gravitational waves could uh, actually shed some light maybe in the okay. future and i suppose we might need some luck as well but gravitational waves allows us to probe regimes of extreme gravity uh, near the the surface of uh, of black holes and yeah. like i said uh, properties of the motion of black holes and the way that they interact when they merge all of that gets imprinted on these gravitational waves uh, so in principle one should be able to also probe uh, einstein's theory of gravity in in these regimes where yeah. we expect that when when the regime gets more and more extreme that at some point einstein's theory should break down uh, but so far uh, there has been no no confident uh, or rather i should say it the other way that so far all the detections have been consistent with einstein's theory of gravity uh, mm -hmm. but we haven't yet gotten to a, a a a phase yet where we have really tested the most extreme regimes so hopefully that will happen uh, in the in the near future or at least in my lifetime i hope Uh, that would be very yeah. exciting if if i sense theory of gravity it depends shashwat on the fact that see uh, uh, hmm. so i think first let's just talk about that watershed moment that happened at least in your current field right now so the first big detection happened when two uh, uh, when the binary black holes collided right or they combined to form one and they first that was first detection of the uh, gra the existence of gravitational waves right Now, right that's right you have yeah. been part of another watershed moment when it came to these gravitational waves so can you just take us through what that was and more importantly i'm i'm more interested in what you know what did it make you feel like what was going in your head when all of this was happening right so okay uh, so like you said uh, so the first detection of gravity when that happened uh, I, i was during i was still doing my phd and at the time i was not a part of the of the ligo collaboration yeah. uh, however uh, like you said more recently there was another uh, very uh, a, a very seminal discovery if i can put it that way uh, which yeah. uh, allowed us to to detect for the very first time uh, the merger of a black hole with mm -hmm. a neutron star so just to give you some uh, what you know just some idea of what a neutron star is a neutron star is basically a, a star which is which approximately has the mass of the sun and mm -hmm. however uh, that mass has been crushed to the size of a city so just to give you an idea the the, the radius of the sun uh, yeah. it, or the size of the sun uh, is about a, a million times uh, the size of the earth Uh, right. however uh, when you take all of that mass and you mm -hmm. squash it down to the size of a city yeah. uh, that's when you get a neutron totally. star yeah so it right. so these are extremely compact in fact uh, 
a teaspoon worth of uh, neutron star material so the amount of you know the amount of sugar that you take when you add it to your tea in the morning if instead of sugar you replaced it with neutron star material uh, it would weigh as much as a few hundred thousand elephants uh, so that gives you an idea of how dense it is so these are extremely yeah. dense uh, beyond anything that we can even synthesize in the lab uh, mm-hmm. but i guess nature has achieved it um, and now you have a neutron star which is colliding with a black hole to produce gravitational waves this was never uh, observed before in fact one had never seen a, a hybrid orbit before in the sense that where you have a binary two objects orbiting each other uh, where one yeah. of the objects is a black hole and the other is a neutron star uh, that was never observed before uh, and this is the first time that we have not only observed uh, the last few cycles of their orbits but we have also observed them colliding and merging uh, so this was a, a seminal discovery uh, that happened earlier this year Uh, of course uh, the entire discovery and all the analysis that goes behind it uh, involves like i think of the order of 2000 scientists uh, so right. very many people have been involved in this and i was also lucky to be a, a, a part uh, of of this collaboration when they uh, when they made the discovery uh, mm-hmm. my contribution to to this work essentially came in interpreting or rather inferring uh, what we can say about how often these systems merge so how many of them are out there and merging uh, right. within a certain volume of space and within a span of a year uh, and so that involves a certain amount of uh, statistics and data analysis and okay. i co-developed a, a method during my previous postdoc Uh, that went into uh, estimating this number the, the what in in the in in the in technical jargon would be called the rate of mergers so how often right. they happen uh, per unit time per unit volume um, and that is something that i had worked on during my previous postdoc and i was uh, very happy uh, to mm-hmm. to see this work actually be used for a seminal discovery to make some statement about it so uh, yeah that was uh, that was very very gratifying but why did i do sorry i'm saying while you were working for it while while mm-hmm. you're making those analysis of the predictions or statistical data did you in your wildest dreams expect that the calculation would detect anything right now was it part of your calculation uh so the thing is that uh, there there were already existing analyses uh, that mm-hmm. uh, actually analyzed the data in real time so they may not be the the most uh, extensive analysis they are sort of reduced version so that they can be done quickly uh, but mm-hmm. nevertheless uh, they were able to actually so as soon as the data was acquired within seconds it was analyzed and uh, it was a candidate event was found uh, so right, the right. collaboration is of course never sure whether uh, you know in low latency whether uh, something is actually an event or not it is always uh, vetted afterwards with more deeper analyses to make sure that uh, you know nothing has gone amiss uh, because often because these detectors are so sensitive uh, there are certain sources of noise that can mimic gravitational wave signals so one needs to make sure that you know it is not one of these sources of noise 
uh, mimicking uh, uh, gravitational wave signals from a neutron star black hole merger. So, uh, what was uh, so the way that the way this all like uh, unfolded was that the the low latency, meaning the real time analysis, uh, yeah. came up with a candidate event. Uh, so at the time, uh, I guess uh, we were not necessarily very sure, first of all, whether this was a true event or not. And even mm -hmm. if it was a true event, we were not very sure whether it was a neutron star and a black hole merging, or was it just two black holes merging or something else. Uh, so right. all of that analysis uh, came later, uh, and uh, you know, several weeks and actually several months of analysis. And eventually when it was... Uh, determined that this was indeed a, a merger of a neutron star and a black hole, that's when I, I was very, very excited. Because uh, this is one of the six, uh, systems that I was really hoping that uh, I would detect as part of the collaboration, or rather I would be a part of the collaboration of when, yeah, when, when the detection happened. And that, that, that did happen, so I was very, very happy about that. And also very happy that uh, some of my work got used to make some statement about such systems. Yeah, I think you're being extremely humble by saying you're happy because I'm pretty sure in the field of astrophysics to make these kind of uh, discoveries is not something that happens quite often, right? Because I'm pretty sure there must be a lot of them working their, uh, uh, you know, pardon the bad word, but, you know, working their asses off for probably decades and may not be able to come up with these kind of discoveries. So was that truly something that everybody jumped on to? Is this something that... So like you said, these kind of detections can happen quite regularly, but to uh, ratify them and to say that this is actually a watershed moment of something like this, of, of this big kind of a nature, I'm pretty sure it's not happening that often, does it? Uh, that is, in a sense, you're, you're actually very right. Uh, but what I would say is that I was sort of lucky because I jumped into the collaboration I became a part of the collaboration when a lot of the hard work of actually preparing the detector, right, and right. making it sensitive enough to see such things, all of that had already been done. And these are people who had worked for decades, you know, you know, progressively improving the, the sensitivity of these detectors. Um, there, there were a number of uh, previous runs where the detectors acquired data and they found nothing and they you know it wasn't clear whether there was a fundamental flaw in the way that these detectors were working or whether it was just that the detectors weren't sensitive enough to to pick up things but the people who were working on it were confident that this was just a sensitivity issue and if you keep making the detectors more and more sensitive more and more sensitive eventually you will get to a stage where you'll start to see these mergers um, and that whole thing spanned several decades and I wasn't, you know, part of the collaboration or worked on it at the time. Uh, I actually jumped on it when the detector had already seen uh, a few events, uh, which means that uh, I, I kind of, uh, I, I kind of was reaping the, the rewards of the hard work of other people who had put in decades of effort. So in that sense, I, I, I feel I was, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, but Sorry. of course, uh, the the part which involved me, you know, constructing an analysis to make a statement about the rate of mergers, uh, that uh -huh. took a long time to, you know, for me to just, first of all really understand uh, how to construct something like this, and then eventually doing the math and constructing it and whatnot. That 
that was quite fulfilling it, it it took a while at least for me to to completely understand and get a hang of all this but um eventually when i did get a hang of all of all of it and uh, when i did end up constructing the the necessary formalism um mm-hmm. that was uh, that was very heartening and i guess the kind of the, the cherry on the cake was uh, when this analysis got applied uh, to a seminal event like this uh, that was a very happy moment and uh, of course uh, again uh, i just want to emphasize that uh, you know while i'm mentioning that you know i worked on this analysis as i tried i'm i want to make it very clear that you know again even this construction of this analysis was done in collaboration with others uh, so it's not like i like this idea just came to me and i, I went ahead and i did yeah, yeah. yeah it was done in collaboration uh, i i i took on a sort of leadership role in that analysis but uh, the analysis itself is based on other work that was done previously so this is just to say that this is all very collaborative work uh, but exactly. it's very exciting and very fulfilling that so i i have a, a slightly more philosophical question sure. right so you spoke about what gravitational waves are you figured out how is it that we try and measure them and we have also figured out what are the kind of stuff that we can measure and you've already measured stuff like that right but what more like why are we getting why are we so uh not desperate what exactly are we trying to look for we've proven that gravitational waves do exist what more and why more uh, that's a that's a very good question uh, actually so so up to the time of the first detection of gravitational waves uh, this entire enterprise was really an enterprise in detection can we prove that such things exist and can we prove that they are consistent with einstein's theory Uh, right. so when the first detection happened uh, you would have seen in the media that a lot of it was advertised as einstein has been vindicated again right or einstein right. has been proven correct uh, proven correct again which i suppose was fine but uh, what i want to say now is that gravitational waves mm-hmm. this this entire field has now become an enterprise not in detection but an enterprise or a branch of astronomy so you can think of it okay this is probably a very bad example but imagine that uh, you or, or or supposing we had never seen light from stars before this right. and 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 supposing then suddenly we came up with the capacity to see light from stars and mm-hmm. now we know that light from stars exist but right. that is just the beginning right but now once you know that you can we'll see light from stars of... yeah exactly so now you want to know what does that light tell you about the stars and you know yeah, how many right. of them are out there what are they made of etc uh, so in much the same vein uh, gravitational waves have been detected which is a very big deal uh, but now that they have been detected this is really just the starting point of a new branch of astronomy called gravitational wave astronomy mm-hmm. uh, so so there are number of advantages of gravitational wave astronomy that is not available in um, conventional astronomy involving just light uh, so one of the things is that uh, this kind of astronomy gravitational wave astronomy allows you to see objects that don't produce light at all so for example right. you cannot detect the motion of uh, black holes uh, with light uh, mm-hmm. because black holes don't emit light 
so therefore, uh, you know, studying the motion of black holes uh, and basically understanding their masses as well as what kind of population of them are out there. Are they mostly very massive black holes or lighter ones? All those kinds of questions you can now start to answer with gravitational wave astronomy that you could not answer mm -hmm. with conventional astronomy. Uh, that's right. one. Um, the other uh, very interesting thing that gravitational wave astronomy can give us, which may not be available through normal astronomy, um, mm -hmm. and that is uh, understanding states of matter uh, that are so exotic that you can't actually detect them or synthesize them in the lab. So specifically, I, I talked to you a little earlier about neutron stars, right, which are right, extremely right. dense objects. So it turns out that we don't really understand the nature of matter at those densities. Um, and uh, neutron stars or studying neutron stars will actually enable us to understand matter at those densities. And right. that actually, in principle, could have an effect maybe either in the near future or in the distant future, where uh, once you understand the nature of matter at those densities, you can actually maybe come up with some sort of application right here on the Earth. So okay. there is a sort of, uh, well, I would say a somewhat long connection, but in principle, there could be a very fruitful connection. So the idea here is that, um, you know, when you have a neutron star that's, uh, say, orbiting a black hole, uh, because of the, the gravitational forces of the black hole on the neutron star, the neutron star will get deformed. Uh, yeah. So now the amount that it gets deformed uh, mm -hmm. gives you some clues about the nature of the material that makes up the neutron star. So if the neutron star was right, very stiff, right. it would not deform as much. If the mm -hmm. neutron star was soft, uh, then it would deform a lot. Uh, so right. these, so this is just a, a sort of rough way to tell you how, uh, you know, the motion or the existence of a neutron star around a black hole could mm -hmm. tell you about uh, the nature of matter in that that lies within the neutron right. star. And as it turns out that, you know, the deformation of the neutron star as it's moving around the black hole, uh, that mm -hmm. actually gets imprinted on the gravitational wave. So if there was more yeah. of a deformation, the gravitational wave would have a different shape. If there was less of a deformation, it would have a different shape and, and so forth. So this is another, yeah. uh, I, this is actually one of the, the very big targets, I would say. Uh, of gravitational wave astronomy, uh, which is okay. to understand the, the the nature of the material that makes up the neutron star. Um, so that's yeah. another. Uh, the third thing I had already alluded to a little earlier before, and that is uh, we want to understand what whether Einstein's theory of gravity works in its most in the most extreme regimes of right. you know, of very strong gravity. And mm -hmm. that gravitational wave astronomy promises to be able to do. Uh, so right. far, we haven't found any deviations from Einstein's theory of gravity, but uh, of course, that doesn't mean that we won't find we it in the future. Yeah. But that also depends. Uh, like, is there anything? It also, uh, like you said, right? You you need to have a really dense uh, mat matter that that's also accelerating at a really fast space. So is there anything heavier than what we already know? Like we know black holes, we know neutron stars in space. Is there anything denser or something that can actually create that we're hoping to find? Uh, no, in fact, uh, well, 
that is again a question that could be answered by gravitational wave astronomy. Uh, so currently, uh, so currently the densest material objects uh, that we know of are neutron stars. Uh, anything yeah. that's more dense than a neutron star will collapse to a singularity and become a black hole. Uh, but oh. so far, uh, we have not uh, found any kind of objects that are, you know, denser than neutron stars, but mm. are still able to hold themselves up against gravity so as not to collapse to a black hole. But if we are, if we do end up finding such objects, um, that would be extremely exciting. It means that uh, our models of, uh, it would give us clues about uh, the a kind of physics that we are uh, still only very vaguely understanding. understanding. So, yeah. So, so if we were to find objects denser than neutron stars, but that haven't yet collapsed to a black hole, uh, that mm -hmm. would be a, a very, very big breakthrough. In fact, I would say that would be as big a breakthrough as the original like uh, detection of gravitational waves. Uh, in fact, it might even be uh, uh, an even bigger breakthrough uh, because in a sense, uh, gravitational waves is a natural consequence of Einstein's theory of gravity. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas uh, these uh, very exotic objects, which are even denser than neutron stars, uh, would mean that it would require uh, kinds of physics that uh, that only you know that 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 is only studied uh, at the moment more as a as a you know as as an interesting speculation rather right, than right. A, a, a sort of uh, reality that we think exists out there. Uh, but if we see it, then of course that just you know breaks open all kinds of avenues. So again, another extremely hypothetic question. Mm -hmm. Which is see the the we realize that when you look at technology, you look at even uh, uh, the whole engineering aspect, the costs somehow. I mean, because you've got the mastery of the engineering, you can figure out a way to reduce the cost. So what at one time was costing one billion, if I have to redo this again, chances are that I can get it done at a much cheaper rate. Right now, right. now that I know that I have to make these instruments far more precise, right? The only logical explanation is to take it out of the Earth and either do it, either uh, you know, orbiting or take it to the Moon. Or do you think there is a future of us doing something like this in Mars, which is something that we are going after in the long run? Yeah, this is again a very, a very relevant and very interesting question. So there is already a. A mission that the European Space Agency is, is pushing after, which is to uh, build a gravitational wave detector uh, in space that will be orbiting the sun. And uh, the detector arms will be separated by millions of kilometers. And in fact, they will not be like actual material arms, but they will be three kind of pods, if you can think of All them right. that way. Uh, where, where if you connect the lines between the pods, the lines will be perpendicular to each other. And right, these right. pods are separated by, I think, uh, I think about five million kilometers. And uh, it turns out that uh, the the longer your arm, uh, so the more, more sensitive. Yeah, the more sensitive you can you can get. Right. And it turns and it turns out that these uh, this specific kind of detector is expected to detect very different sources of gravitational waves uh, than those that uh, than those 
that are detectable by ground based detectors mm-hmm. uh, specifically uh, these uh, these the space based detector uh, is expected to see gravitational waves from extremely massive what are called supermassive black holes so the orbits of supermassive black holes uh, produce gravitational waves at a frequency that falls within the bandwidth of the space based mm-hmm. detector but falls outside the bandwidth of ground based detector oh, um uh, yeah and uh, there are other uh, interesting uh, kind of sources uh, so one uh, potential kind of uh, motivation to to build such a space based detector uh, is to be able to observe sources where one one object is extremely large like a supermassive okay. black hole and the other one is either a tiny black hole or a neutron star that's that's orbiting it and the reason that makes it interesting is because when you have this kind of big difference in the masses uh, the smaller object is essentially mapping out the 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 nature of gravity around the massive black hole the supermassive right, black right. hole and in a sense this would be one of our best bets in really probing einstein's theory of gravity to its most uh, or in the most precise way because this the small black hole right in a sense you could think of this small black hole as a sort of microscope that is probing the region around the supermassive black hole systematically mm-hmm. as it orbits and yeah. that will then be able to capture any deviations uh, yeah. from einstein's theory of gravity so that is again uh, something that you know would not be detectable by ground based detectors uh, because these gravitational waves would fall outside the bandwidth of the ground based detectors but if you were to construct this space based one it turns mm-hmm. out that its bandwidth is 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 just at the right kind of location in free, in the in the range of frequencies to be able yeah. to capture the gravitational waves from these you know what are what what would we would call extreme mass ratio systems meaning one is a supermassive black hole and the other is a small smaller black hole, much smaller one yeah so yes uh, so there is a, 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 a very there is a lot of uh, strong yeah there is not only a yeah, lot of motivation to build such a detector but the european space agency is really pushing for it at the moment uh, right. to build it But I'm pretty sure it has to be a massive collaboration across yes, all of these guys yes. who are already here. Right, right. I think now NASA has also started to collaborate with the European Space Agency on this, and uh, I think the current projection is that this space-based detector uh, mm-hmm. will be launched sometime in the mid 2030s. Uh, very recently, wow. I think a few years ago, there was a, a sort of uh, there was a, what was called a Pathfinder mission. for this yeah. uh, uh, detector that was you know actually launched into space to see whether uh, even in principle this can be done and the pathfinder mission was a success so this is basically telling you that uh, in principle we should be able to detect uh, we should be able to build such a space based detector so now uh, like uh, work is going forward in 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 building this uh, space based detector by the way this space based detector is called lisa Yeah, LISA. Uh, it is. It stands for Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, LISA. Uh, wow. So yeah, yeah. But um, so, now, you, 
technologically i mean from a uh, engineering perspective laser interferometer are absolutely necessary for measurements or you know is there a uh, is there science to try and or technology trying to figure out other ways to try and measure this which is not laser interferometer so i remember listening to some uh, I, th I think it was at a conference where i had heard of some talks where uh, using what are called bose einstein condensates that come up with an idea of actually detecting gravitational waves using a tabletop experiment uh, uh -huh. but this seemed i mean to be very honest i didn't really understand okay. it uh, but uh, my impression was just having heard the talk that you know this was still very much in the realm of idea and speculation uh i don't think something concrete had yet been constructed uh mm. however uh, more recently uh, there were there there was a, a paper a, a couple of papers that were published in nature in that's one of the well known science magazines or as, as physics and astronomy magazine and there uh, there were like concrete there was a concrete design i think it was still interferometric yeah i think it was still interferometric but they were able to they have proposed a, a way to actually reduce the size of your detectors so that it can just lie on your table um uh, and so there is definitely a lot of work uh, towards uh, you know really pushing for uh, detectors that are much smaller and much more economically viable Mm, um, mm. and i i mean maybe this may not even happen in in my lifetime but i imagine at some point in the future we you know you we may come up with a, a design that is so sophisticated uh, where uh, you know maybe something even within your phones you know you may be able to detect gravitational waves and that yeah. would be very cool but that is very much, you know i'm just throwing out an idea in the very much <laughs> science fiction uh, but you know um, i guess there's no harm in imagining but at the moment uh, in terms of what has been concretely achieved it's all it's only with these mega mega detectors spanning 4 kilometers right? so yeah. right so the other thing no charvat uh, we've heard of astronauts going out into space and having this kind of an overview effect right so right. it's that that feeling of of smallness when you go out and you realize it you guys are looking at that empty black sky and studying it in its entirety doesn't it have any effect like does it have any philosophical or any you know spiritual kind of an effect with you guys is there an overview effect with just astro astrophysicists or even astronomers who just keep looking into the sky uh, so i think uh, this overview effect is probably something that observational astronomers get where uh, they actually go to you know they have telescopes that you know they point in a certain direction these telescopes are often placed in very remote locations uh, you know away from from light pollution basically so that mm -hmm. it's very dark and you can see the you can you can see very many more stars than you can see from a city for example and that's right. when you know you it's a very visceral experience right with your senses you can directly see the, uh, the grandeur and the magnificence uh, magnificence of 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 space 
however, in a field like mine, like gravitational wave astronomy, mm-hmm. our senses are not tuned to see these gravitational waves. So what we ultimately end up doing uh, for as, as data analysts is really just crunching a bunch of numbers if you really reduce mm-hmm. it down. So this overview effect, I would say, is somewhat lost. Uh, however, uh, this I would say with this this overview effect is 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 gotten back whenever you have these big discoveries. So then you have some time yeah. to contemplate and actually think. Okay, this is what we've actually discovered, and then you really realize that you know you have these mergers that happen at billions of light years away, and that mm-hmm. gives you a sense of you know just how enormous space is. And that, you know, it, it's a humbling experience, right? I mean, the Earth is just one pale blue dot orbiting another yellow dot uh, in, yeah. in a space that is, uh, you know, the observable space is, is, I guess, of the order of many, many billions of light years. Uh, but that's just the observable space. There, there is nothing that, you know, tells you that there is no space beyond that. Um, so it, it, it seems like uh whenever we discover these things uh at least well i i don't know about my my colleagues but at least myself whenever we discover these things uh it it, it gives me a, a a sense of you know this is um there is so much more out there and you know we we know so little and we are very confined in a very physical sense we are very confined in the cosmos and mm-hmm. we are really, uh, in many ways, in terms of exploration, we are just really taking our first baby steps towards understanding the cosmos. Right. And just and since you brought in the spiritual component, uh, I guess one the, the the one thing that you know, at least I would ask myself, and I, maybe I imagine other uh, my other colleagues do as well, is whether mm-hmm. as human beings, as a species whether we are even equipped to understand something that is so much grander and bigger than we are right uh, mm. is our consciousness if, is our in, well i guess if, if i were to you know use consciousness and intellect inter- interchangeably uh, yeah. although i guess we, you know philosophers may not like that but say if i were to do it just to play this game um see whether our, our our intellect and is 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 really equipped to understand, to, to understand a universe, uh, I'm not entirely sure because there are already you you know you hear of of stories where you know you have scientists and mathematicians that try to understand infinity, uh, right. but are unable to do so, right? Uh, so maybe you know if such great people are unable to to understand nature because of its size and its grandeur. Uh, maybe there is a limitation of the tools that are given to us, right, by nature. Uh, maybe the mind, maybe the intellect is not uh, sufficiently, uh, or is not. Is, is, we don't have, we don't possess the necessary faculties uh, to to explore all of the cosmos. But nevertheless, it seems that uh, we are making, you know, we are we are taking steps towards understanding well, the cosmos, uh, however limited that may be. And uh, whether we, you know, eventually do end up completely understanding the cosmos or not, I don't know. Uh, but I, I can say for sure that the journey uh, is, is, is extremely fascinating and to me very worthwhile. Um, even though we may not ever understand the cosmos, I think 
just going after this idea of understanding the cosmos is 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 a very worthwhile journey. So I, you had spoken about. I mean, you just said something quite interesting, right? You like maybe the universe is not being designed, uh, or we are not consciously evolved to really understand the true grandeur of the universe as we are today, right? right. Now, right. There was an interesting thing I rem I remember reading uh, where. uh the famous micha kaku himself he was talking about you know it, imagine the the chances of where the position of the earth is vis-a-vis -vis the sun and that human life has truly formed right to be in that goldilocks area and to have human life to be formed he used a very interesting term saying that the universe has been designed for consciousness Right, so it's been the Earth has almost been fine-tuned for consciousness to happen, and it's in the it's inherently in human mind for us to evolve into and have this kind of consciousness for us to try and understand these aspects. Right, because we've been in the quest of life outside the Earth and we have not found any. Right, so it's right. It's, it's quite hard to believe otherwise that you have this human form. he's evolved enough to try and e explore the area where he is where he is so i mean in 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 our grab in the in the context of gravity newtonian gravity is explaining everything that he knows around him when he's going down going subatomical he's got quantum and he's got that and he's figured something out there even in, in he's gone to outer space and you've got einstein trying to prove him somewhere right but the the fact that we we are trying to constantly explore further seems to be the the driving force of where we are today right right but it it it's quite fascinating because i i'm not too sure i really can't understand where are we going forward now it's 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 more philosophic i'm not pretty sure we don't have an answer right now but where do you think like is is there what what do you expect to see what do you see is is going to be happening like as men or as as human beings we are getting more evolved there is a level of consciousness that can happen right and right what 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 do we expect to find beyond the realms of of these kind of like uh, uh how many dimensions can typical the, the human mind can see right so i think we somewhere i had read about some 10 dimensions and stuff and all but as a concept itself it's quite tough right and i'm pretty sure that why consciousness gets a little more evolved we'll end up seeing far more and maybe we'll be technologically more advanced for us to even explore that far far more i imagine even if 50, like a 100 years ago einstein actually said this is not possible and before the earth how much longer until the earth uh, absolutely evaporates okay so yeah At least another four hundred billion years before the sun vanishes. Yeah, about five five billion years. Yeah. Five billion years. So, and we yeah. are at around five four and a half billion years since the Earth has formed, right? That's right. Yeah. So we have another technical. We have, we have reached the half half life of Earth, and we have achieved so much. I'm just trying to figure out, like, by the time we reach the end of the Earth, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be anywhere where we are right now. Maybe we Earths. uh uh i mean we may be living on the extremes of the earth itself but do you think that if the further further we go away from the earth 
and you know do you think that will have a different effect just i'm just looking at consciousness trying to figure out because i think it's a very fascinating thing and it's quite surprising that i mean it's quite fascinating also that the more i look up into the sky and the more i have these conversations the you know while philosophy and these kind of astrophysics are not the are two parallel tracks the further you know, you look into it the more i see them merging don't you feel that i i i have, yeah i actually i actually think that's a very good point uh, so i think so so science uh, all branches of science uh, including mm-hmm. astronomy astrophysics are ultimately are, are, are attempts or endeavors to try to understand where we are and why we are here Right. Uh, and each of these branches of science uh, look at a particular aspect a sort of reduced version of it and try to to answer that question right so astronomy and astrophysics uh, try tries to answer the question uh, where what is this universe in which we find ourselves and they they mostly confine themselves to to astrophysical and you know astronomy astrophysical of those those kind of objects objects that are very far removed from anything that we experience here on the earth on the other hand uh, i would say branches of of science like biology or uh, even branches that of 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 biology that are you know focused on on the human body and all try to answer the question of you know uh, where are we in terms of here right here on the earth like what is this place um, and also what is our uh, relationship uh, with this place that we are at right uh, because i think that that in a, in a certain sense that is what uh, biology that 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 studies specifically the the human body and the human mind uh, that that tries to answer that question and right. if i were to look at uh, philosophy i think philosophy also tries to answer the same question but using very different tools unfortunately i don't know too much about you know because i was never trained in philosophy so i don't know too much mm-hmm. about philosophy but this is just based on stray things that i have read here and there uh, it seems to me that philosophy is also trying to answer the same question so what i suspect will happen um and this is well i shouldn't even say suspect what i hope uh, and what i you know see in terms of an extrapolation and as any scientist will tell you extrapolation should never be trusted but yeah. if i were to extrapolate it seems to me that uh, all these different uh, separate branches or that appear to be separate now uh, will end up uh, becoming one single branch with all these sub branches being contributing factors uh, mm. in our understanding uh, uh, um, of of this one big subject of you know where are we and and why are we here um and uh, i also think that in in, in terms of uh, you know you asked the question about what will happen technologically in the future uh, with regards to the earth i i honestly feel that uh, we will eventually end up becoming a a, a space faring race where we will have the technology uh, to explore uh, different uh, star systems at least 
and that will i think really enrich our experience of the cosmos and right. if i don't know if there are aliens out there or not but if we happen to once we become a space faring race if we happen to to interact with species from other planets that are uh, that are intelligent perhaps technologically more in, more more advanced than us then this would also enable us to to look at you know look at the cosmos in a very different light right uh, because then you would have uh, perspectives of of beings of consciousness if i can call them that have evolved in a very different way and therefore view the cosmos in a very different way and right. and that those viewing the cosmos in that way could be complimentary to the way we we view the cosmos right so it that, might be that, to them yeah yeah absolutely um and uh, no but this is of course very much as you know in the realm of speculation in fact if you ask any any like hard who who's you know any scientist who's who's very serious about about his work and you ask him about you know whether aliens exist or not i think most scientists will either say they don't exist or they're agnostic <laughs> about it because uh, you know there has been no no at least no, no concrete evidence, evidence. yeah no concrete yeah. evidence of existence not just of intelligent life of life itself uh, on on in space there has been no concrete evidence of that so what i've just said is all just speculating far into the future uh, the mm. only reason i i speculate the the possibility of the existence of uh, of aliens is that you know we are finding more and more through exoplanet searches that you know there is uh, there are in principle just you know billions of possible planetary systems just within our galaxy and mm -hmm. uh, our galaxy is just one among billions of galaxies right so that you know that's uh, that's a lot of possibilities and therefore there could be plenty of planets out there that lie in the goldilocks zone and yeah. thus um, you know they may they may end up producing life uh, but again um the, but again inherent to this speculation right you know you need a planet to be in the goldilocks zone to have life that is our very i would say limited understanding of life itself right we exactly. say exactly. so life means you know these set of carbon, criteria carbon yeah. based exactly and there could be life forms that are based on other uh, elements not necessarily carbon but even mm -hmm. then you know there could be just modes of life uh that are that are very different from anything that we have conceived i believe there was this uh, movie called solaris but i might be mistaken mm -hmm. where uh, there's this very it, it's it's uh, it's based on a russian novel of the same name where okay. uh, the idea is that uh, there are these astronauts who interact with this this planet essentially the entire planet has an ocean and the ocean itself is alive but because of you know our limited understanding of what life should be uh, right. these astronauts are completely at a loss at communicating with this being because they this is they just don't understand uh, what this being is and how it is trying to communicate because of their own limited understanding of how these things should be so um what i what i'm basically trying to get at is 
while we may you know speculate about the existence of life on other planets um, yeah. our very understanding of life itself could be biased based right. on what we right. see here on the earth and the possibilities right. may be far richer uh, than what we think fascinating in fact i remember there was a, a, a in one of the interviews of neil degras tyson and some, somebody asked him you know is there something that keeps you awake at night and he said a very fascinating thing he said imagine a billion years from now the galaxy as we know it is not going to be there because we are also moving away from each other he said that it's almost like the history books of astronomy pages and pages of it would be completely torn apart because it will not make any sense right, right? and it, it it just i couldn't wrap my head around it when it's quite true imagine like you know because it's so dynamic but it's just such a slow process on top of that right it's not something that happens immediately yeah and i just i i couldn't understand it for the longest time but now while while we were discussing it somehow is dawning upon me that it's it's actually quite fascinating right because we are moving away everything that we know is going to be very very different from from what we know today but is there anything right. like this in your head any any idea or any uh, uh unhealth no i don't know i don't even know what to call them any it's it's borderline philosophy but it's also rooted in science is there any thoughts in your head like that that you keep coming back to at night or anything that you've read that you hope is being proven wrong or proven right uh so yeah i so 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 this specific idea that that neil degrasse tyson put forward is maybe something that would not keep me very awake at night necessarily because uh, i know that my own lifespan is is, is going to be a tiny tiny fraction of exactly. the kind of time time span you require for these kind of changes to happen right, uh, but right. there are other things that uh, i think uh, would be would really uh, well, i don't know if it keep me awake at night but if i were to think about them it would give me goosebumps right and right. and i think uh, one of the things that would uh, it would really give me give me goosebumps is if we were to find evidence mm-hmm. for the existence of extra dimensions uh, so what uh, what this would basically right. tell you is that there are not only this not only is there an unknown in terms of things that are far away from you physically mm-hmm. but there's an unknown which may be right here but just because you can't perceive that extra dimension you don't see it um you know just 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 if you were to let your imagination go for a little bit i mean yeah we we sitting right here mm. could be surrounded by activity some of it would could be conscious activity of forms of life or beings or whatever mm. uh, but we can't actually see them because our Uh, the the architecture of the brain is is just not designed to be able to perceive beyond three dimensions right and that and i think that once we start to get evidence that there may be extra spatial dimensions mm-hmm. 
uh, that would uh, yeah that 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 idea just just gives me a, a lot of goosebumps um, because that I think opens up an entirely different realm altogether. It's not just about you know what's out there in space. It's what's right here, but mm. in another dimension. And you know they, they, they you know these things could be literally next to you, but you don't see them because they are in in another dimension. Another dimension. Uh, it's sort of like this. You know there was this book by uh, I believe it was Abbott. He wrote a book called Flatland, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where there are these beings that live on a two-dimensional plane, um, and uh, the 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 thing is that in principle, if you have if we were such beings on this two-dimensional plane, mm -hmm. it is it is not that hard to imagine that there could be another being in the third dimension that could be very close to these two-dimensional beings spatially, right? Right, they could right. be like a millimeter or a micrometer apart, right? Mm -hmm. And but yet, we, not able to see. we won't be able to see because he can't perceive in that extra dimension. Now, imagine right. if, if you were to extend this idea in, uh, you know, from three to four dimensions. Uh, so, you know, that would be something that uh, would really give me goosebumps. That you know, if suddenly we were to discover that there are extra dimensions and we just can't see them. Uh, so, yeah. So there is another chapter sitting somewhere, but not in that name, but doing something else completely altogether. Uh, did you say there's another chapter? No, oh, I'm saying there's another Shashwat sitting somewhere else doing something totally different. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, even if there's another Shashwat, anyone sitting somewhere right. else and possibly observing me, and mm. from very close, from very nearby, but yet I can't see that person because he lives in another dimension. Right. But is it, is time the fourth dimension? I mean, isn't that one of the dimensions that we that we try and add? Uh, so that is. Uh, yeah. So that's why when when physicists talk about extra dimensions, they usually try to make sure that they use the word spatial, uh, mm. but. So time, it is true that uh, you know if you were to stitch time together with space to create a single fabric called space-time, uh, yeah. it makes the the mathematics of uh, the theory of gravity a lot more tractable. Mm -hmm. uh, but from my understanding, this is more a, a matter of convenience, uh, and. It, at least even if it is not a matter of convenience, what is very clear is that the way we perceive space is very different from the way we perceive time, right? For example, I can Correct. go back and forth in space. There's no problem. I can walk five steps forward. I can walk five steps backwards. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to time, it doesn't matter how hard I try. I am always forced to go forward at a certain pace. I can never go back. Um, and I can never go and and see what's happening, you know, forward. I I can't see into the future, even though I can see further out into space, no problem. But I can't see further out into time. I can't, you know, in space I can turn my head and I can see what's happening behind. I can't turn my head in time and see what's happening behind it. So in in that sense, at least our perception of uh, space and time are very different, uh, and therefore I would. At least speculate that time in that sense is is very different from 
space, at least in the way we perceive it, even though in the theory of, uh, in Einstein's theory of gravity, the two are stitched together, but that's mostly for mathematical convenience, right? Right, right. But the con, like, it's hard to imagine time existing before Big Bang, right? I mean, because I'm assuming Big Bang created time or the concept of time. Right, right. Um, actually, the very concept of time doesn't exist before the Big Bang, to my understanding, because space and time or the fabric of space time got created uh, or burst out from the singularity, if you like. Uh, right. And just even asking the question what happened before time even got created uh, mm. is is itself i think an ill posed question right and i think that again comes down to our just you know discussion we were having earlier right. where our uh, i think this this also points to a limitation in our ability to understand these things uh, because we are so like hardwired into thinking in terms of space and time that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to try to talk about things what happened before time was created and before space was created is something that you know we just we don't seem to be designed to be able to answer at the moment but aren't uh, there are, any in, I'm, yeah. I'm just curious to know uh, mm -hmm. when when there is a blast that happens on earth okay so right. when you study that and you trace it back to the time you you get some sort of a thumbprint of what what could have happened right now right all the stuff that we are studying in in space is it anything out there that 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 we can try and decode uh, what it was a billion years ago is that also something that's happening is that part of astrophysics or is that a completely different field altogether that's trying to figure out what happened during the big bang uh, no, no, absolutely. Uh, so this is very much a, so this is a part of, uh, I would say, maybe it's considered a separate field, I don't know, but uh, so this is a part of a branch of, I would say, space science, which is called cosmology, uh, which looks right. at basically the history of the universe, as well as where are we headed in, in, in terms of the cosmos. Uh, so observing and making models of the universe right after the big bang uh, is a branch of cosmology called early universe cosmology and mm. that is very much an active branch and uh, in fact uh, the, the the current uh, the current uh, model of this talks about something called an inflation where there was a rapid expansion of of, of space time right after the right after the big bang, big bang. Right. Uh, and after that there are there are entire uh, like you know regimes in time what are called epochs and each of these epochs have uh, specific properties in terms of what kind of matter was constituting uh, that epoch yeah. um, and uh, we are starting to get at least or rather Ever since the discovery of this thing called the cosmic microwave background, uh, okay. we, we we have made some important strides in in understanding early universe cosmology. So this cosmic microwave background basically tells you that um, when you look out far enough into into space, you will get into you you will hit a, a sort of boundary 
from which you have radiation in the basically the the microwave regime uh, mm -hmm. that that uh, that that is actually coming from that region, and it, it's sort of a, you could think of it like a wall, right? From which this radiation is coming, and right. uh, this somehow I mean without getting too much into the technical details, this actually fits very well with the idea that the universe. Uh, started out uh, with a big bang, uh, followed by by an inflation, and that can explain well why we have this radiation that's coming from uh, that particular distance or in, in space. And remember that when you are looking that far back or that far out in space, you are effectively right. also looking back in time. Uh, so it, the it. so the cosmic microwave background basically corresponds to. Uh, to a moment in time that's about a hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, and just to give you an idea of how early that was in the universe, the we believe the age of the universe is currently fourteen billion years, uh, and so hundred thousand years after the Big Bang is actually very very early uh, in the in the evolution of the universe. So, uh, so this is just to to get a to give you an idea that you know there is a branch of science called cosmology. Uh, that, is that is that is studying exactly what you were asking. You know what happened right after the Big Bang, and how yeah. has the universe been evolving since the Big Bang? But the question of what happened before the Big Bang is is still very much an open question. Uh, there are uh, you know speculations, mathematical speculations, I'll say, where uh, you know they they talk about this idea that you know our universe lies in a in a higher dimensional bulk, and you know you have uh, you basically have our universe which is some sort of membrane i think which collides with another membrane and when this co collision happens that releases a vast amount of energy um, mm -hmm. and that uh, energy is what uh, is is what we refer to as the big bang but again there is no like physical evidence for any of this these are just models um, that right. people are building uh, but i guess as we move forward maybe you know, clever scientists will come up with possible ways to test uh, these speculative theories, mm -hmm. and that will be interesting. Yeah. Right, and I think it's a good wrap, uh, Shashwat, because it's it's interesting that so in advertising, no, we have this whole uh, homecoming of sorts happening. So you, there used to be a time when a lot of the services that ad agencies used to provide used to be happening within the ad agency. And then there was a huge uh, uh, a phase in time when everything went out, right? So people, everybody started being specialized and it, everything went out. And now all of these services are somewhat coming back again, right? How does that relate back to the conversation that we had was if you look at the earliest scientists or the earliest astronomers or the, the kind of stuff that people used to do, a lot of them were philosophers, Come not spiritual leaders, but they were mathematicians, physicists, and philosophers, right? All put in together. I mean, there was unlikely that you you would get stuff like that. I mean, some of the quotes that even Einstein had, or uh, uh, you know, look at Da Vinci's, or uh, a lot of these people, they were borderline philosophers. If you just extract, if you remove all that, the astronomy or the maths, a lot of the questions, a lot of the probe that they were doing. Is slightly more philosophic in its tendencies, right? But 
the way that you see the future happening is is again all of them coming back together but for a higher purpose right because you're you're hoping that there is a certain field of of scientific evidence that somehow is is larger than what we we are right now and that becomes the the big branch of of whatever it is that we call and all of us sit all all the studies that are sitting under that and then again i'm pretty sure they will all split split out and they'll all come back again and i think it's exactly how your gravitational waves do behave so there is a, a, an up and there's a down and there's an up and there's a down and i think that's what is currently happening and i think we are just waddling in that ripple as we go along but it's been a fascinating journey man thanks a lot to yeah. part of yeah i think that's a very very uh, nice way to look at it yeah um and yet yet indeed right that you know scientists in the past were uh, i think they were called natural philosophers if you you know like right, uh, right, right. Uh, if you if you go back far enough in century they were called natural philosophers it was all an attempt at understanding the the world at the universe and their own place in the universe and currently it's everything has become very streamlined uh, but like you say if we project further into the future i believe that right. the streamlining will again become uh, will go into a sort of integration and perhaps we will have just one subject where everything else are just small branches of that larger subject right. yeah, so, yeah. so out of curiosity is this what the god equation is that something that we are all striving after uh so the god There's something hmm. called the God equation. Is that is, is is that this, or is it something that only string theorists are are running after? Uh, so at the so I'm not sure. I, I've heard of the God particle, like the the Higgs boson, and maybe hmm. maybe so I might be wrong, but maybe what you're referring to as the God equation, or what people refer to, is probably a unified theory of. Uh, of ah, physics, right, right, right. Uh, uh, it could be that, uh, and and if that is the case, then indeed string theorists are what uh, string theorists are the people who are trying to aim for that. Uh, mm. And you know, at the moment, the belief is that we can un- we we have a uh, uh, an almost complete understanding of the subatomic uh, world, uh, mm-hmm. and we seem to have an almost complete understanding of the astrophysical world, or at least how gravity operates. That's it. Yeah. Uh, but we have not been able to combine the two. So right. maybe, well, maybe what that's hinting at is that we don't have a complete understanding of the quantum <laughs> world, and we don't have a complete understanding of gravity. And that's probably true. Yeah. Right. So uh, hopefully, in our lifetime, something of that happens. Yeah, that would be very exciting. It's a pleasure talking to you, Shashwat. Where can people find you? Is there any way they can reach out or ask you questions or get in touch with you? Uh, so, uh, you know, my my email is there on the the website of uh, ICTS. Uh, right. So if just so if just if they go to you know just just search for ICTS Inter- International Center for the Theoretical Sciences. If they just uh, look that up and they go there, uh, there is a you know there's a uh, they can click on uh, I think it's called people or uh, staff or something like that and they everyone who is a part of ICTS their names and emails and uh, you know contacts are all there so they can definitely uh, find me on that website if they want to reach out. Any to me social platforms? Um, I'm I'm on Facebook. 
but I'm not terribly active on space, Facebook, but I am mm-hmm. uh, technically on 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 Facebook. Uh, but that's about the only social platform. Uh, although yeah. I think probably I should start also becoming more active on Twitter because a lot of this yeah. science communication happens on Twitter as well. And I think right, science communication right. is an important aspect of our field. So maybe mm. I should also get active there. Yeah, something to think you, about. You were inadvertently giving a, a, a beautiful name for something that should happen, which is Facebook, which is the whole idea of Facebook, but in intergalactic. Oh, really? Did I call it Facebook? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you, you were just about to say it. So I said, oh, oh my yeah. God, you just said it. <laughs> you are doing this. Yeah. <laughs> With yeah. aliens and us, we should be communicating through Facebook. That will be a great yeah. thing to do. Right. I guess the medium of communication would be gravitational waves. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Beautiful, man. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, yeah, let's try to catch up sometime again.